0: we are looking at the issue of biblical decision making and tonight is the second and last installment of this little mini series that we're doing and we began last week i mentioned to you last sunday evening why i have such a pastoral burden to teach on this topic uh, not only because of it's just a tremendously practical topic with the abundance of decisions that we face every day as believers uh, but also because it's an area of great challenge, confusion, and ignorance in the church today. The evidence of that, as we talked about last week, is to consider the, the overwhelming popularity of all of these methods that are alive and well in evangelicalism today. We mentioned a few of them last week, laying out a fleece, casting lots, uh, interpreting so-called open and closed doors, uh, having God give you a dream or a vision, uh, holy hunches, inner promptings, uh, inner peace, the, the sheer popularity of these things, the widespread acceptance of these things is evidence enough that we need help. We need to cultivate discernment in these areas. And that's the topic we're looking at in, this, in our time together. How, how do we make significant decisions in our lives when the Lord hasn't directly addressed this decision in his word? And we mentioned the examples that, we, that we're talking about, like a job opportunity. How do we know if the Lord wants us to take this job, to go to this school, to move here, to uh, pursue ministry, to pursue training for ministry, uh, investments opportunity, career? This person interests me. How do I know if the Lord wants me to marry them? And my goal for last week and this evening is to equip us with biblical principles so that we're not naively swept along by the tide of foolish decision making in the church today but also so we just have some practical guidelines for how to navigate these challenging areas in our lives and so we are looking at eight keys to biblical decision making in the Christian life as i talked about last week these are these should not be viewed as exhaustive and And even what we're used to in our times together, we're not really going to be going too deep down into each one of these. It's just a these are general guidelines that we're going over. But last week, we looked at the first four of them, and we saw first a preliminary clarification, a preliminary clarification. And that is that we have to make a distinction between God's sovereign will and God's revealed will. The only will that we can possibly be out of is God's revealed will in Scripture. And that will is a way to think, a way to live, a way to be. It's only when we are doing something God forbids or not doing something God commands that we can know we're in or out of God's will. So we first want to make that preliminary clarification. And then secondly, we looked at a realistic expectation. A realistic expectation, namely that the majority of the Christian life is lived in this arena. These gray areas, these matters of freedom where God has been silent. We will constantly be making decisions without the luxury of a chapter and verse that says, Thou shall or thou shalt not. We then looked at a third key in biblical decision making, an unwavering conviction. An unwavering conviction, namely... That the Scriptures are sufficient. The Lord doesn't tell us what decision to make in these gray areas, but He does tell us everything we need to honor Him, to be faithful. Everything that relates to our spiritual life and His will for us, we have. We don't need more revelation from God in order to make this decision in a way that's honoring to Him. And then fourthly, we looked at a healthy suspicion. A healthy suspicion. Because of the nature of the human heart, we must never assume that our desires, our plans to pursue a certain path are free from the contamination of sin, from the contamination of idolatry. Idolatry is blinding. You know, we may think we're seeing clearly, we think we're being objective, but if our heart is set on something other than Christ and his priorities for us, it will exercise inescapable influence to one degree or another. And so we concluded our time last week by asking this question. All right, well, how can I guard myself from myself in these decisions? How can I put into practice this healthy, this appropriate suspicion of my own desires, knowing my own my own sinful heart? How can I do this to the best of my ability and make sure that I'm making this decision free from the contamination of idolatrous desires? Well, that brings us this evening to a fifth key in biblical decision-making, a godly prioritization, a godly prioritization. In other words, our practical decisions should flow out of a biblical value system. And that language is straight out of Kirk Youngblood's book, Free to Be Wise, a biblical value system. The Lord does not tell us what to do in these areas of Christian freedom and decision-making, but he does reveal what his priorities are for us as believers. These biblical priorities won't necessarily make the decision obvious for us, but they will largely shape and influence how we make the decision and why we make it. What's the greatest value in the Bible? The highest priority in the Bible is God's glory, and that is to be our highest value as well. First Corinthians 10 31, so whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, whatever decision you have to make, do all to the glory of God. Matthew six thirty three, we get our priority stated explicitly. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. Jesus teaches his followers you're to have a primary agenda in life. And this primary agenda must take precedence in our decision making. So broadly speaking, when it comes to these decisions we face in the Christian life, we can put, the, put it broadly under this banner that does this decision line up with God's priorities for me? To glorify God, to seek first His kingdom and His righteousness. And you say, well, what does that look like practically? Let's flush that out a little bit. Well, pastor and author Jerry Ragg has written a short document. You're probably familiar with it. At least some of you will be. Navigating the Gray Areas of Life. You can put that into a search engine. It'll come right up. Navigating the Gray Areas of Life. It's a great resource that I would commend to you. I'm going to borrow from some of his language in that document from time to time. Also, leaning on some of the principles in Kirk Youngblood's book, Free to Be Wise. I would also commend that to you as a resource. But let's get practical for a moment and consider... How do we apply a biblical value system to our decision-making in the Christian life? What are some biblical priorities that should govern these decisions that we have to make? Well, personal godliness, right? Spiritual growth, our sanctification. We know the scriptures put a premium on our sanctification. A couple of passages for you just by way of reference. Philippians 2.12, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. 1 Timothy 4 verse 7 says that we are to structure our lives, discipline our lives for the purpose of godliness. So just a couple of examples of the multitude of, of direct explicit commands with regard to our personal growth in godliness. And so one obvious question we ask and apply what, to whatever significant decision we're making in the Christian life is this. Is this going to help me become more like christ is this going to promote my spiritual growth now let's take the negative side of this principle is this decision going to slow me down is it going to hinder my spiritual growth this is hebrews 12 1. let us lay aside every weight and the sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the the race that is set before us not just sin but weights we are to lay aside There are certain activities or behaviors we may be technically free to do. They're not inherently wrong. But at the same time, there's nothing spiritually advantageous about them. And for us, they might slow us down. They might add unnecessary weights to the Christian life. So is this decision and the consequences thereof going to slow me down by entangling me in sin? Or more often, maybe it's just making me vulnerable to temptation. Maybe it's just purposely doing something that will have the effect of making it harder for me to fulfill what God has called me to do. Maybe it's ungodly influences, undisciplined, unregulated relationships with unbelievers. Maybe it's entertainment, the amount or the content. Maybe it's taking a, a higher paying job than necessary because one's heart is set on finances and, and the heart loves money so you take that job requiring many more hours and then it makes it more difficult for you to pursue the things that god has called you to as i've heard it said your money your resources your time your energy your passion flows most effortlessly toward your heart's greatest love what does your life revolve around another biblical value or priority that should be driving our decision making family marriage If married, how will this decision affect my marriage based on the strengths and weaknesses of my marriage? Is this a wise course of action? Could it put unnecessary strain on my family and marriage? For husbands, is it demonstrating a concern, a love for my wife? Wives, is it demonstrating a a submission to my husband for the sake of Christ? Is it helping me fulfill my responsibilities of what God has called me to? There are certain decisions, certain Certain activities that we, we might uh, pursue that are not conducive to family life and marriage. Another biblical priority for the believer, the local church. Local church, specifically the area of Christian fellowship and service. Let's be reminded of what Pastor Nick taught on recently. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 24. Let us consider how to stimulate one another to love in good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. First Peter 4.10, as each has received a gift, use it to serve one another. Two examples of, the, uh, of all of the one another's, the, the various one another's that we see in the New Testament which can only be fulfilled in the context of the local church. Close fellowship with other believers. And so when it comes to this decision in my life, is it going to impede my ability to do that type of intentional godly fellowship and using my gift to build up God's people? Or is it going to help it? Is it going to promote it? What about evangelism? That's another biblical priority. 1 Corinthians 10.33 Paul says, just as I also please all men in all things, not seeking my own profit, but the profit of many, so that they may be saved. Now, he's not talking about pleasing men in a man-fearing sense. He's talking about not causing any unnecessary offense, an unnecessary stumbling block. So he says, every decision, every decision I make, I think about how it's going to impact those I'm witnessing to. Edification. So evangelism, now move to edification. That's another biblical priority. How is this going to edify others? How is this going to build up others? By my example, we must never make a decision or exercise a Christian freedom at the expense of another's faith. Certain decisions we make that we do in front of others, it's not just a matter of freedom for us. We are part of a body. We are one body. We have to consider the impact it has on the other members of the body. And so Operating within a biblical value system means our lives are an example. It means we're thinking strategically about our lives and we're not unnecessarily uh, doing something that's going to cause offense or cause another to be emboldened to sin in that area. Now, the next one is just straight out of Jerry's language from that document. What about a decision that'll hypocritically cover my sinful desires? A decision that'll hypocritically cover my sinful desires. 1 Peter 2:16 Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover up for evil, but living as servants of God. Very common to turn liberty into license. You know, it's almost as if freedom in a particular area means I have to do it, not just that I'm free to do it. So how would I know if this decision that I'm leaning toward or I'm, I'm i'm considering is hypocritically covering up my sinful desires how would i know that what would be some evidences well one way to know is if you're always having to defend your so-called freedom around other believers having to defend it over and over to mature godly people always having to give an explanation for it that could be a sign that your freedom is not really a freedom Another way to know is if you're unwilling or unable to let go of it, if it's a freedom, you should be able to easily uh, sideline it for a season to, to, to evaluate, am I really free? Am I in bondage to this or is this an area of freedom? If a godly person starts to ask some discerning questions about this decision you're thinking of making and you respond by getting, anger, by getting angry or discrediting them or getting defensive, that's an evidence that it could be you're covering up your sinful desires there. We have to recognize how easy this is. This, this one could actually fall under the category of a healthy suspicion uh, in this. But take a look, if you want an example of this, take a look at King Saul in First Samuel 15. First Samuel 15, verse 3. Samuel speaking on behalf of the Lord to Saul. Now go and strike Amalek and utterly destroy all that he has and do not spare him, but put to death both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. There's the command of the Lord. No living thing should be spared. There's God's will. Skip down to verse 7. So Saul defeated the Amalekites from Havilah. As you go to Shur, which is east of Egypt, he captured Agag, the king of the Amal- Amalekites, alive and utterly destroyed all the people with the edge of the sword now notice verse 9 but Saul and the people spared Agag who did Saul and the people remember that Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep the oxen the fatlings the lambs and all that was good and were not willing to destroy them utterly but everything despised and worthless that they utterly destroyed blatant disobedience as he disregarded the word of the lord but now watch he presents himself as no this is actually this was actually obedience verse 13 samuel came to saul and saul said to him blessed are you of the lord i have carried out the command of the lord look at that but samuel said what then is this bleeding of the sheep in my ears and the lowing of the oxen which i hear if you obeyed the command which was very clear saul What are all these animals doing here? Verse 15, Saul said, They have brought them from the Amalekites, for the people spared the best of the sheep and oxen to sacrifice to the Lord your God. But the rest we have utterly destroyed. He leaves himself out that time. Deflection, blame shifting. It was the people who did this. He conveniently excuses himself. And then notice, baptized disobedience sanctifying your unholy behavior, putting a veil over your sinful motives. We spared the best of the sheep and oxen oxen, so that we could worship. It's all for the Lord. Modern day version, yeah, I go to the casino and gamble, but if I win, I'll give it to missions. Yeah, I go to the bar and drink a little bit, but I'm there to evangelize. You're just baptizing sinful motives. That's what Saul's doing here. Verse 19, Samuel confronts him. Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord, but rushed upon the spoil and did what was evil in the sight of the Lord? Notice this contrast. You have one person, Saul. This is obedience, and we're going to sacrifice to the Lord. This is totally acceptable. Another person, Samuel, disobedience, evil in the sight of the Lord. Two perspectives. Why? Verse 20 Then Saul said to Samuel, I did obey the voice of the Lord and went on the mission on which the Lord sent me, and I brought back Agag, the king of Amalek, and have utterly destroyed the Amalekites. But the people took some of the spoil. Sheep and oxen, the choicest of the things devoted to destruction, to sacrifice to the Lord your God at Gagal. Deflection, unwillingness to take ownership as a leader. I'm holy, I did well. The people, they're the ones you should be talking to. Verse 22. Samuel said, has the Lord as much delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to heed than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of divination and insubordination is as iniquity and idolatry. Look at that connection Samuel makes there. Saul, something's got control of your heart. Instead of the Lord, you're worshiping something instead of the Lord. This is idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. And now notice verse 24. Then Saul said to Samuel, now he comes clean. I have sinned. I have indeed transgressed the command of the Lord and your words. And now he gets to the idol. Because I feared the people. And listened to their voice. The point is, in the name of worship, in the name of, we're going to sacrifice, this is used for ministry. In the name of obedience, Saul was actually putting a veil over his man-fearing heart. He was ruled by idolatry, even though there he was saying, I'm doing something noble. And so when it comes to our decisions, we should be considering this idea. Am I making this decision in the name of Christian freedom, when in fact I'm hypocritically covering over an evil desire? Let's move on to the next biblical priority: the wise counsel of godly people. The wise counsel of, of godly people. The scriptures clearly put a value on this, just a couple of proverbs to bring to your attention. Proverbs 12:15: "The way of a fool is right in his own eyes, but a wise man is he who listens to counsel." Proverbs 13:10: "Through insolence comes nothing but strife, but wisdom is with those who receive." counsel. J.I. Packer said, it is a sign of conceit and immaturity to ignore advice in major decisions. Another author writes, godly counsel provides a check and balance against our natural tendency to be biased in our perspectives. It's a crucial step in any significant decision that we make as believers. This is, of course, assuming we're going to godly mature people. One caution with this principle, however, is that we shouldn't assume just because godly mature people validate the decision or say, yeah, it's wise, we shouldn't assume God is revealing his will through their counsel to us. In other words, we're still responsible for the decision we make, no matter how much counsel we've received affirming it. So this principle, like the others, it can't be the only principle. It's one of many that reveals where we put a priority, where the Bible puts it. Let's move on to the, another one, the maintaining of a clean conscience. Maintaining of a clean conscience, that's a biblical priority. Romans fourteen twenty-three: whatever is not from faith is sin. Now in context of Romans 14, that's a statement indicating we should never make a decision or engage in any area of so-called freedom where we have doubts about whether the Lord is pleased with it. Now, to clarify, just because our conscience is clean is not a license to pursue it. But if our conscience is not clean, that means automatically we don't move forward. I'll quote Jerry here from his document. Every believer should be submitting every day to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. However, not everyone agrees on just what the Lord wants. And he's talking about these gray areas. Some are convinced in their conscience that something is wrong. Others have a freedom of conscience to do that same thing. We must ask ourselves, for me personally, is this something the Lord would be pleased with? If we have any doubts, we should not do it. If you believe that the Lord's will for your life would not be violated, you're free to proceed, Romans fourteen five. He continues, though, but be careful here. Paul warns us to be completely free from doubts. In other words, we should not be involved in some gray activity without having sought counsel, studied God's word, prayed, scrutinized all possible pros and cons before proceeding. If important issues are bypassed and the conscience is violated, the result is sin. Romans 14, 23. So maintaining this pure and clean conscience is a biblical priority. Sometimes an option, a decision that we're considering, is ruled out by considering this principle alone. If there's uncertainty in your heart, if you're not sure if the Lord is pleased with it, you got clarity for the time being. On the other hand, if I've got a clean conscience and I believe the Lord is pleased with this, now I just move on to the next principles and I continue to work my way through these wisdom principles. So, that's just examples. Those are examples of biblical priorities, not an exhaustive list. We could add many more, but just an example, of the types of things that we want to apply to our significant decision-making in the Christian life. And you might hear this and think to yourself, every time I have a decision, I've got to go through this. Uh, every time I come to a fork in the road that the scriptures don't directly address, I've, I've got to go through a process like this? Well, not necessarily, but I'll clarify that in a moment. Before I do, you can certainly appreciate why all those faulty methods are so popular after we've gone through this. Why is that? They're just easy. They don't require any spiritual effort, any faith, any wisdom, or critical thought. It's just easier to go on an inner prompting. It's just easier to go on this holy hunch to divinize my feelings and assume God's speaking to me. I can skip all of this and just move forward. It's so easier to just set up a sign, force it to mean whatever I want it to mean. Lord, if an airplane flies by in the next five minutes, it'll mean you want me to... Where did that come from? Those things require nothing except an active imagination and a vague familiarity with biblical language. So it's not difficult to see why they're so popular. They're very appealing to the flesh, but back to this issue now. Do I have to go through this every time I have a decision to make? I would answer that by saying, if you're trusting and obeying the Lord as a way of life, and you're renewing your mind on a regular basis with Scripture, and you have an inner life that's dominated by the truth, and you have a godly mind and you're striving, are you really going to have to stop every decision and consciously say, okay, now the scriptures are authoritative, they're sufficient, I've got to operate with a biblical value system, I've got to make sure I'm prioritizing the kingdom of God. No godly person's going to have to really pause and do something abnormal that they're not already doing as a way of life. This is the habit of your life if you're godly and discerning. A godly, mature person is going to have this higher degree of discernment than the person who isn't practicing these things. And that higher degree of discernment, what does that do? It enables you to move that much more efficiently through these decisions that you have to make. So all that to say, this godly prioritization, it shouldn't be abnormal in principle. I understand the specifics we get more and more refined and equipped with, but... This way of thinking and way of living, that is what it means to be a Christian. Well, that brings us to a sixth key in biblical decision-making, a liberating obligation. A liberating obligation. Author Ken Davis writes this, Despite our God-given ability to reason, we sometimes wish the Bible would reason for us, relieving us of the responsibility of making personal decisions. You know, as we just mentioned a few minutes ago, that idea is certainly behind a lot of what's practiced today. Uh, I don't want to be responsible and apply wisdom and faith to this decision, so I'm just going to allow God to make this decision for me through one of those methods that we've talked about. And then what happens? I get the, boast, the, the best of both worlds, don't I? One, I don't have to do anything requiring any spiritual effort. And two, if the decision blows up in my face, God gets the blame, not me. I was just following his leading. It's the best of both worlds. Well, the scriptures don't give us that luxury. We are expected to be operating in wisdom. We are commanded to seek wisdom and to be applying it to our lives. If you want a reference, just read the entire book of Proverbs for that. I'll give you one in the New Testament, though. Ephesians 5.15. Therefore, be careful how you walk, not as unwise men, but as wise. What does it mean to be wise? Stuart Scott defines wisdom this way. Knowledge of God's Word practically applied to a holy end. I like that definition. Knowledge of God's Word practically applied to a holy end. A.W. Tozer defined it, this way sanctified common sense sanctified common sense this is the obligation we have when it comes to these decisions but i entitled this a liberating obligation why is it liberating well because these are areas of christian freedom freedom doesn't mean we can act however we want with no other considerations it just means that the issue or decision god hasn't spoken directly to When the Lord is concerned about a specific way of thinking or living, he gives a direct and explicit command. Do this, don't do this. When we don't have those explicit commands, what's the Lord concerned with? Our manner of doing them, our motive for doing them. And hence, we are free to be wise in the language of Kirk Youngblood's book. We are free to make the decision knowing I can't be out of God's will unless I violate something in his word, but it's not a freedom without responsibility. Now, let me illustrate what I mean by this. This is an example I'm paraphrasing out of the book that I just mentioned, but there's an idea today that there is this specific path and only that specific path for your life. And that path is represented by hundreds of little dots uh, representing decisions and milestones in your life. And you've got to move from dot to dot, one thing to the next in your life, connecting the dots that God has prepared for you in advance to connect. And as you do that, you're moving in, in his will. Practically speaking, it means there's one man or one woman for you to marry. Don't mess it up. There's one house to buy. There's one car, one career, one school, one this, one that. You've got to go through life with extreme caution, trying to connect the dots as God would have you because what happens if you miss one of those dots? The entire trajectory of your life gets thrown off. And that's why you hear people saying today, I'm out of God's will right now. Why? Are you violating scripture? No, I I made this foolish decision 10 years ago and I haven't recovered yet. That's, That's what they're talking about. They're no longer in God's will in their mind. What torture to live life like that? What torture? As soon as you think, well, maybe this is the right house to buy. Maybe this is the right spouse to pursue. Maybe this is the right job. You're you're plunged into a paralyzing fear. What if there's a better one around the corner? What if there's a different dot I'm supposed to pursue? So why is this liberating obligation a better route? Well, not only because it's biblical, but also because you can't mess up your life. You can't mess it up. It's freeing, it's liberating, because as long as you're operating in wisdom, as long as you're seeking first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, striving to glorify God, you're free. You're free. Free to use your sanctified common sense. Free to be wise. Now, do we see examples of this in Scripture? After all, we are calling this biblical decision-making. So is this biblical? Well, that brings us to the seventh key in biblical decision-making, a discerning imitation, a discerning imitation. And here we're just going to look at examples of individuals in the scriptures operating with this liberating obligation, this freedom to make whatever decision they deem to be best given their circumstances and what they knew. Look at Acts 6, verse 1, for the first example. Acts 6, 1. Now at this time, while the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint arose on the part of the Hellenistic Jews against the native Hebrews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily serving of food. How did the apostles solve this problem? Verse 2. So the twelve summoned the congregation of the disciples and said, notice this language here, it is not desirable for us to neglect the word of God in order to serve tables. Therefore, brethren, select from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we may put in charge of this task, but we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. How'd they solve that problem? How'd they make that decision? They analyzed the situation They considered, what are we supposed to be doing in light of of what God has called us to? And based on that, they came to a wise, practical solution to meet the need. It's not desirable for us. We have these priorities. So let us come up with a wise solution. Notice, God didn't tell them what to do. He didn't tell them how to solve the problem. They used sanctified common sense in the language of Tozer. 1 Corinthians 16, verse 1. Let's look at another one. 1 Corinthians 16. Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so do you also. On the first day of every week, each one of you is to put aside and save as he may prosper so that no collections be made when I come. When I arrive, whomever you may approve, I will send them with letters to carry your gift to Jerusalem. Notice this. And if it's fitting for me to go also, they will go with me. So as Paul writes this, he doesn't know if he's going to be going with these individuals to Jerusalem with this monetary offering. Most believe it was the amount of the offering that was going to dictate whether or not he would go. But the point here is, he's making a decision according to what he deems best. If there's a wise reason for me to go, if it's fitting, if it's appropriate for me to go, they'll go with me. Look at one more, Philippians, or two more, Philippians 2, Philippians 2.25. Philippians 2.25, but I thought it necessary, I thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier, who was also your messenger and minister to my need because he was longing for you all and was distressed because you heard he was sick. Now, this is an area of freedom for Paul. It would not have been wrong for Paul to keep Epaphroditus with him and it would not have been wrong for him to send Epaphroditus to them. So how did he make that decision? Because God didn't tell him what to do. He concluded, Epaphroditus needs to be around the Philippians more than I need him to be around me. I thought it necessary. He made a decision in wisdom in sanctified reasoning. One more. First Thessalonians chapter three. Verse one. First Thessalonians chapter three, verse one. <clears throat> Therefore, when we could endure it no longer notice this we thought it best. We thought it best to be left behind at Athens alone. And we sent Timothy, our brother and God's fellow worker in the gospel of Christ, to strengthen and encourage you as to your faith. We thought it best. Kirk Youngblood writes this, Did Paul say, God told me to send Timothy? Did he say I had an inner impression that I should send Timothy? No, it was a decision based on spiritual expediency. Based on our mission, based on our ministry, we thought it best for the cause of Christ to do this, to go this route. So, just a few examples there to demonstrate we have a freedom to make decisions, but it's a freedom unto wisdom, not unto irresponsibility, not unto carelessness. And these are examples that we can imitate. Now, I labeled this point a discerning imitation. Because we have to be careful not to look at any and every experience someone has in the Bible and conclude that should be normative. I can expect that in my life. I should model that. Let me give you a classic example of what I'm talking about. You see, one might listen to this, this series, and, and say, well, what about Gideon in Judges chapter 6? Gideon laid out a fleece and the Lord responded to it. It worked out for Gideon. So how can you say we shouldn't do that today? Why can't we imitate Gideon? Well, the first thing we should note is the only person who wants to say, I want to be like Gideon is one who hasn't read the story very carefully. Because if you're familiar with this account, you probably wouldn't be highlighting it as something that you want to emulate in your life today. Let's turn over to Judges 6 and just make a few brief observations here as we near the end of our time together. Judges 6, God gave Gideon a command to go deliver Israel. That's chapter 6, verses 14 to 16. And a promise that he will be successful. Culminating in verse 16, But the Lord said to him, Surely I will be with you, and you shall defeat Midian as one man. Direct revelation to Gideon. Here's my will. There's no confusion, no misunderstanding. Gideon's lack of faith led him to ask for a sign. Verse 17. Gideon said to the Lord, If now I have found favor in your sight, then show me a sign that it's you who speak with me. That sign was the infamous fleece. Skip ahead to verse 36. Then Gideon said to God, if you will deliver Israel through me as you have spoken. Look at that, doubting the word of God. As you've spoken. Behold, I will put a fleece of wool on the threshing floor. If there is dew on the fleece only and it's dry on all the ground, then I will know that you will deliver Israel through me as you have spoken. Your word's not enough. I need a sign. And it was so. When he arose early the next morning and squeezed the fleece, he drained the dew from the fleece, a bowl full of water. So not only do you have direct revelation, the word of God saying, here's what's going to happen, I guarantee it. Now you have the Lord confirming it with a sign. But one wasn't enough. Verse 39. Then Gideon said to God, don't let your anger burn against me. So he knows, he knows he's testing the Lord's patience. That I may speak once more. Please let me make a test once more with the fleece. Let it now be dry on the fleece, and let there be dew on all the ground. God did so that night, for it was dry only on the fleece, and dew was on all the ground. So this is the account that we turn to today to justify similar practices. When we're not sure what to do, when we're doubting the word of God, we, we lay out a fleece. And the Lord will come and confirm it like he did with Gideon. Let's ask this question. What did Gideon receive here that he didn't have the moment God spoke to him and said, you're going to defeat the Midianites? What did he receive from the fleece? Nothing. Nothing. He already knew God's will. So what did the fleece accomplish? It bolstered his lack of faith. Bolstered his lack of faith. It hardly highlights Gideon as exemplary. What does it say? It says much more about the patience and mercy of God. Now, someone might say, well, we don't get these signs and miracles today because we don't believe as we ought. We don't have enough faith. Well, then why didn't Gideon get it? He didn't believe either. It's also interesting that people who put out fleeces today, so to speak, whatever that looks like, they don't ever do what Gideon did. Gideon asked for a real miracle that could only be explained due to the supernatural working of God. Believers today, our fleeces are things that are going to happen regardless of divine intervention. Have you noticed that? Like the phone ringing. Lord, if the phone rings in the next five minutes, I'll know you want me to. Those are our fleeces. Things that are going to happen anyway, things we know are going to happen so that we can justify what we want to do. And so when it comes to this principle of a discerning imitation, we've got to know the difference between a passage that is teaching a principle that is normative, that we can imitate, and a passage that is merely detailing the experience of someone, but it's not the point of the passage to teach us how to make a decision or how to hear from God, as is the case with Gideon. All right, an eighth and final key in biblical decision-making A resolute submission. A resolute submission. This is the idea of submitting in advance to the Lord's sovereign will. We can do everything we're supposed to do. We can prioritize exactly what we should. We can exercise wisdom to the best of our ability. We can be informed, careful, prayerful, responsible. But we are operating with this mindset. That's no guarantee that things are going to turn out the way I foresee them. So this principle is speaking to the issue of our trust, our confidence when we have to make these significant life decisions. As I was thinking about this, it's similar to a sermon. A preacher labors in the biblical text for hours on end. He studies, he draws conclusions, he weighs his conclusions against the conclusions of others. He carefully thinks through an outline. He thinks through how to deliver it clearly. But his trust and confidence can't be in any of those things. His trust has to be in the Lord's sovereign prerogative to use his efforts to accomplish his will, his results. And the same is true with our decision-making. We labor to be wise, we exhaust all avenues of wisdom, and then we move forward in faith as we submit ourselves to the Lord's sovereign will, come what may. Proverbs 16, verse 9. The mind of man plans his way, but the Lord directs his steps. We pursue our goals, we chart our course, but we recognize the Lord's plan will be fulfilled. Let's, let's end by going to James 4, just for one final passage on this. Probably the clearest passage that we see this, this idea here. James 4.13. James 4.13, Come now you who say today or tomorrow we will go to such and such a city and spend a year there and engage in business and make a profit. Yet you do not know what your life will be like tomorrow. You're just a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes, vanishes away. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and also do this or that. James is not rebuking them for planning, for trying to be successful, for strategizing. All of these things were not the issue. The issue was they were done with a spirit of presumption. Godless planning. It's a rebuke of an arrogant self-sufficient planning which doesn't acknowledge God or or His sovereignty. Assuming my plans will succeed as long as I have the right formula, as long as I've done everything I can do, I'm going to get my achieved result. And James is saying, you don't even know if you're going to be alive tomorrow. So Don't put your trust in your wisdom, which leads to presumption. Put your trust in the Lord's sovereignty. If the Lord wills, this or that will happen. So I thought this would be a good one to end on because we need to recognize even when we've done everything we're called to do, we humbly submit ourselves to God's sovereign plan, knowing that his way, his path, is always better, always wiser than ours. So eight keys to biblical decision-making as we wrap up tonight. A preliminary clarification, just in case you didn't jot them down or you want me to repeat them. A realistic expectation, an unwavering conviction, a healthy suspicion, a godly prioritization, a liberating obligation, a discerning imitation, and a resolute submission. Well, it's my prayer that these are going to be helpful guardrails for us in the significant decisions that we face Let's close in prayer together. Father, thank you for these truths. Thank you for your sufficient and clear word and how it is a precious light for us amidst the challenges of our circumstances and the darkness of this world. And we thank you for our times together on Sunday evenings as we prepare to take a break now for a few months. We're so thankful for those here who chose to make Sunday evenings a priority. And I ask that you'd bless them and put strength in their striving as they develop convictions in these areas and strive to put them into practice. And we ask, Lord, as is our prayer every time we come together, that you would cause us to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, that we would bring him much glory in our lives. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.